Hey everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. As always, we're brought to you by you with your support on patreon.com slash adherent apologetics. Today I'm joined by Dr. Holly Ordway. She's a fellow of faith and culture at the Word of Fire Institute, and she's also a visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. She has her PhD in English from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's the author of numerous books, including Apologetics and the Christian Imagination Integrated Approach to Defending the Faith, which is the book we're going to be talking about today. She's also the subject editor for the Journal of Inkling Studies and a published poet. Um, her link down below, you'll be able to find it at hollyordway.com. Um, Holly, welcome so much. How are you doing? And just thank you for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Always, always a pleasure to talk about the imagination and apologetics and uh, glad to be here. Yeah, there's so much. I saw um, you're part of the the Inklings thing that I just noticed was we were going through your bio, and I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan, so uh, does that relate to C.S. Lewis and his, like, Inklings group from way back when? Absolutely, because C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, um, their their works are really, I think, models of of Christians using the imagination in, in really powerful and effective ways, so that they, you know, they've been a really a huge influence on my work, um, and indeed, I have a new book coming out on Tolkien. It's not an apologetics book; it's a literary critical book, but um, it's called Tolkien's Modern Reading: Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages, and it's all about what Tolkien read of modern literature and how that um, how he used that in his in his work. And it's really focusing on his creative imagination and how how that creative imagination worked to give us these marvelous things that we have. So this whole idea of the imagination and how authors like the Inklings, Lewis and Tolkien used it is, is really a big part of, of what I do. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk with you about this idea of apologetics and the imagination um, and the integration of these that we're going to be talking about throughout this interview. But before we get into that stuff, in case someone doesn't know like who you are, can you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do like beyond the bio? <laughs> Right. Well, um, as you as you noted, Zach, um, I'm a fellow of faith and culture uh, at the Word on Fire Institute. Um, this is uh, Bishop Barron's ministry, um, whose goal is to basically evangelize the culture, help bring people to Christ, and particularly um, with an emphasis on the the nuns, N O N E, the people who have just walked away from the faith. They they don't care. They're not interested. And also people who have fallen away from the faith that they they had you know they had a connection to the church but then they've walked away which is a huge number of people sadly and that's the word on fire ministry in general and i work specifically within that for the word on fire institute which is the sort of educational branch doing you know courses and, and programming to help equip evangelists so sort of my vocation uh, i would say in a way as an apologist is that i teach the teachers um, and that's also what I did um, at HBU, um, Houston Baptist University. For eight years, I was uh, um, teaching and leading the Master of Arts in Apologetics. And I'm indeed, as you noted, still um, connected with them. I'm very happy to say that as visiting professor of apologetics. So I would definitely encourage people to check out not only my current work um, at Word on Fire, but also the Cultural Apologetics program at Houston Baptist, which is a just marvelous program. Very proud to be associated with it again. You know, you're, you're sensing a theme here, equipping Christians to share the faith, equipping Christians to be more effective apologists, more effective evangelists. Yeah, I can see that kind of passion all throughout your work. So what got you interested in like apologetics and this kind of work in ministry in the first place? Well, it really comes to the fact that I am myself a convert. Um, I'm an adult convert to Christianity. I was an atheist through my 20s, very convinced atheist, and um, had 
you know, reckoning with that when I was about 30, 31. Um, and I actually recount this in my memoir, Not God's Type. Um, an atheist academic lays down her arms. So we'll we'll let interested people look at that if they want to hear more about my story. But the short version is that, you know, I I became aware through the works of imaginative fiction that there was something that my favorite authors believed in that I didn't believe in. Lewis, Tolkien, the other you know, great, great authors of English literature. And that got me curious about what did these people believe, even though I didn't believe it myself. And then in investigating it, finally with an open mind, you know, giving it a fair shot, I encountered really good, solid, historical, philosophical, moral arguments for Christianity. And I realized, well, it's true. Um, and I became a Christian. And so it was fairly natural, especially since I'm an educator, I was teaching English at the time. It was a fairly natural move for me that as I, you know, grew in my Christian faith that I wanted to learn how then to communicate it effectively to other people. And that really is the source of my interest in apologetics. And because of my, both my own experiences and my training in English literature, going the, the route of looking at the imagination and how does that work has really been, I think, a, a cornerstone of, of what I'm doing as part of you know, what we did at, at HPU in the Cultural Apologetics Program. And as you know, Zach, in the book that you pointed out, Apologetics and the Christian Imagination, I've written a book on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm super excited to kind of dive into this uh, with you. So let's just start off like very broadly, like what is the imagination? How does it relate to apologetics? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question to start out with, because most people, honestly, they, they think of the imagination and they think of, you know, like, oh, just, you know, movies and fun stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's not really very important. And maybe it's nice. Maybe it's, you know, whatever. But it doesn't seem to be all that important, you know, for questions of truth, especially since people tend to think imagination means imaginary, made up, not true. But that's really a very modern, um, narrow sort of fractured idea of what the imagination is because the imagination is actually part of our being made in the image of God. It's one of our human faculties, just like the intellect and just like the emotions and just like the will. So the imagination is a power that we have as human beings to make mental images of things. Now those images could be true images. They could be false images. Um, but the imagination is the power that creates them and it helps invest them with meaning. And so one of the things that I've found in my work, you know, digging back into the older understanding of the imagination is that we're always using the imagination all the time to create meaning for the things that we're thinking about. Um, we can't not use it. We are always envisioning things. We're always attaching meaning to the words that we use. We just don't realize that that's also the imagination. And because we don't realize it, a lot of times, I think especially as Christians and apologists, we neglect it and we focus only on truth claims. Is this true? But one of the things I think that's most important for us as apologists is to realize people need to care about the the topic first. Only if they're interested in something, only if they find it meaningful, do they care whether it's true or false. And it's the imagination that's so vital in creating that meaning. 
And then people say, wow, this is really meaningful. This is interesting. This is, this is attractive. I wonder if it's true. And then they care. And then our arguments will actually resonate. Otherwise, if we make truth claims, you know, about the reality of the resurrection, for instance, or the existence of God, if people don't find words like God even meaningful, if they're just abstract words or jargony Christian things, our arguments, they might be the best arguments in the world, but they will make zero impact. So the imagination helps us to help people have a robust meaning for these words that we're using. And then they'll, then they might actually care whether these things are true. So I, th I think you did a good job of developing this idea of imagination and how it relates to apologetics. So it'd be good to dive into like how this relates more to like our everyday language. So um, in terms of like just how we speak day to day, how does this, like this idea of imagination relating to apologetics relate to everyday life? Well, we actually have a lot of opportunity to use the imagination when we're speaking and we're in a way doing apologetics and evangelization without even necessarily realizing it. So for mm -hmm. instance, you know, when we, we think about the word God, well, what do we even mean by that? Well, we as Christians mean something different than a lot of people. If you walk in, you know, have a conversation with a friend or a colleague or a neighbor and you say, oh, do you believe in God? And they say, oh, no, I don't believe in God. Now, before you launch into like why, you know, five arguments why you should believe in God, it's really useful to ask a few questions to find out, well, what do they mean by that? Yeah. Or, or you can put it this way, what kind of God do they not believe in? Because if someone says, oh, well, I can't possibly believe in this, this old man in the sky who you will blast you if you say a bad word, that's a stupid idea. We can honestly say, yeah, that is a stupid idea. I don't believe in that God either. Whoa, what? So someone who's, who's expecting to be, you know, braced for an argument finds that what we actually agree that this is a stupid idea. And then we can say, well, but what I mean by God is, you know, the creator, the ground of all being, you know, being itself. Um, whoa, that's a completely different concept. And then you might actually be able to have a conversation that focuses on, well, is there a creator? If there is, can we know about him? And that's likely to be much more productive than a back and forth about like, well, you should believe in God. Well, no, it's stupid without finding out what does that word actually mean? So that would be an example of sort of everyday, everyday use of attention to meaning when we're just having a conversation with somebody. And I would just add, too, that um, we should also just be aware of how we use our language just every day. And what does that show about our own understanding? Because, for instance, the word prayer, you know, when we use that word, are we really aware of the depth of its meaning? Or do we just mean intercessory prayer, asking for things? Well, that's one kind of prayer. But there's all sorts of other kinds of prayer as well. There's adoration, there's confession, you know, there's there's different things we can be talking about with prayer. And if the only thing people are hearing when we talk about prayer is, oh, my thoughts and prayers are with you, they're going to have a fairly thin, weak grasp of that word. So we kind of need to work on making sure that we have a rich meaning for the word 
And then we'll use it in more everyday contexts that will help other people see like, oh, these Christians, when they when they talk about prayer, they 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 mean something more than just that little oh thoughts and prayers thing. Huh, I wonder I wonder what they mean. Maybe I should ask about that. Yeah, I think it's something that as you're talking about, something I realized is how the word God can mean different things to different people. Like I think about um, one of my good friends, he grew up um, in, an, in a predominantly atheist slash Buddhist country. And like when he hears the word God, he thinks a lot differently than like someone who like me who grew up in the States was. And that's so interesting with how that relates to just our everyday language and how it's important to really show what we mean. Um, so in your something else is in your book, you talk about this idea of recovery. So mm-hmm. I'm curious, like what this idea of recovery is and how it relates to like apologetics and the imagination. Well, this idea of recovery comes from J.R.R. Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, where he talks about the functions of fairy stories, by which he means the functions of fantasy literature. And one of the things that he says is that good fantasy helps us to gain recovery of vision. So we read a fantasy story and maybe, you know, for instance, in the Lord of the Rings, you've got these, these, you know, Ents, the tree beard and the great shepherds of the trees, and they're just really cool, awesome creatures. And then you come back, you close the book, you come back into the, the ordinary world. And then maybe when you look out the window and you see a real tree, you might actually notice it and have a fresher vision of it and see, wow, it's pretty amazing, really. The trees, they they drop the water and they from the ground and they make these amazing, beautiful, living things. If you really look at a tree, they're pretty amazing. Uh, so that's a, a, a very small example of what Tolkien calls recovery. And his point is that if you're engaged in a really meaningful you know, experience of literature, you can get a sense of recovery, of really seeing clearly of a lot of other things, like other people, about the ideas of, you know, love, you know, about, you know, about, about lots of things that are really important. That immersion in the story, strangely enough, when we come out of the story, helps us see our own world better. And so when we're reading like a narrative about, well, for instance, The Lord of the Rings, you've got this struggle of Frodo and Sam to do the right thing, to you know get rid of the ring, even though it's extremely difficult and it would be easier to just give up. This long, painful struggle um, to Mount Doom And that gives us kind of an image that helps us think about our own suffering, our own struggle, you know, the own, our own attempts to, you know, carry on. And also to look, for instance, at scripture with fresh eyes, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, it's very easy to look at the Bible, you know, and see these accounts of things and just be like, yeah, yeah, I've read that a million times. But then if you think about, for instance, our Lord carrying the cross to his crucifixion, having immersed ourselves in the story of the Lord of the Rings and kind of felt the burden of the ring as as Frodo and Sam are painstakingly going up to their own Calvary, in a sense, we might read that account in scripture and say, wow, he, he was carrying the weight of our sins in that cross. And we might get it more powerfully than than we did before we had that recovery of vision that we had in the story. So that's the that's the dynamic of recovery, which is why really stories and then films and music can do the same thing. Art can do the same thing. 
they're not just nice extras. They actually help us to engage with reality in a more profound way, even when the art or the story is itself maybe very fantastical, we come back and it helps us actually engage with, with reality and, and see it more clearly. Mm. So you'd say like, as Christians, we can look at maybe like works that aren't necessarily like about the Bible, um, like, you know, like the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings things you, you're talking about. And we can look at these things and while they may not be like the word of God, the Bible, we can look at these things and we can see how they can kind of correlate to like different parts of just like the gospel. Is that what you're saying here? Well, that's that, that makes part of it. Um, and that depends again on, on the stories. So for instance, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the line in which in the wardrobe, there's, you know, one scene in particular where Aslan, you know, dies and, and comes back to life again. He raised, he's raised from the dead. That is an imaginative sort of supposal about, you know, the resurrection. And that's, that does correlate pretty closely with scripture. So reading that may help us recover a fresh vision of the meaning of the resurrection. But I would say it's even more broadly because a book that has no specific connection to scripture, if a story or a film or a piece of art gives us a true picture of something, what it really means to you know love or to be struggling or to be suffering, or even just to experience any aspect of human life, that's gonna help us see more clearly and understand more fully when we come back to it in in our own you know, our own day-to-day -day lives. And that's actually connects to something I, I also talk about in Apologetics and Christian Imagination, which is something called theory of mind. And theory of mind has to do with being able to imagine what other people are feeling and experiencing, even though they may be experiencing something that we have never ourselves had or experienced. And literature can really help us to do that. Because if we can engage in the experiences of very different characters, different you know cultures, different times, um, maybe imagined, maybe real, it develops our capacity for empathy and to be able to kind of put ourselves in the other person's place. Like for instance, you know, you you gave the example of your friend who grew up in a in a very different context. Um, we need to be able as Christians to say, I wonder, can I imagine what it's like to have a view of the world that's different from my own? And that's going to help us to relate to them. Because if we just relate on the basis of what we know, we might we might be closing off all sorts of doors. We might be making misunderstandings. But if we can have that theory of mind that the arts help us to develop, we can say, huh, maybe I can see how he's seeing it that way that's different from me and engage appropriately. Another area of the book that you talk about um, how the Christian imagination can impact like apologetics is this idea of like the incarnation, having God taking on the flesh and the person of Jesus. So could you elaborate on how, you know, using the Christian imagination relates to the incarnation? Yeah, now it's interesting because um, my own specialty is, is stories. And if you think about it, you know, we read in the scriptures that the word became flesh. You know, Christ is the word of God. And of course, we have in the scriptures the written word of God. So I, I like to meditate sometimes on the fact that, that God has really shown us that language um, and stories are, are really important. They're not, they're not just little extras. Um, so the fact that Christ is the word made flesh, 
already gives us a little bit of a pointer of the connection between the things that we create with our words and the incarnation. Now, obviously, the incarnation is a historical fact. Our Lord took on real flesh and blood, you know, everything started as a little tiny embryo and all the way towards being born as a baby as we celebrate at Christmas, all the way through to adulthood. And I think an important thing to emphasize, he still has that body. We tend to, I think sometimes to forget about the ascension, but you know, he enters into heaven, into that supernatural dimension of reality, embodied. So the incarnation has a starting point, but it has no end, it's, it's eternal. So the incarnation is something we really have to reckon with when we're sharing the faith. And one of those things is to note that we are also incarnate, you know, and that's part of the goodness of how God made us. We have bodies. We're not just sort of souls that happen to have bodies. We are incarnate beings. And when we're trying to share the faith, we have to remember that because it can be very easy to kind of spiritualize the faith and make it all about like, well, if you just have a spiritual feeling, then that's it. Or to make it only intellectual that, well, if I, if I know the right facts about God, then I'm all set. But we have emotions, we have intellect, we have imagination, we have bodies, and we have wills to choose what to do in accordance with what God has asked us to do and told us is good for us to do. So all of those things have to be part of our evangelization, because if we miss out on, on one of them, then we're not really helping people to be fully converted. We want the whole person, not just the mind, not just the emotions. So one of the ways I think that the imagination can, can help us with that is that when we are reading a story, we're actually sort of seeing an embodiment of some idea in a story, in particular characters, in particular situations. So it no longer becomes just this abstract idea, it becomes actual characters, actual situations. And that helps, I think, to make the connection between, okay, these ideas about Christianity, but they're very specific, they have to deal with people, whole people. Um, and so using literature and the arts in that way, it it kind of by its very method helps connect what we're teaching with the sort of, you know, the incarnational reality of, of our Lord and our own and our own selves. Mm, yeah. Uh, one more area that I'd love to talk with you about and kind of like the imagination and Christian apologetics is this the problem of pain and suffering. You know, this issue can drive a lot of people away from the faith. And how do you use like an imaginative approach uh, to apologetics to deal with like the problem of pain or the problem of suffering? Yeah, and you're you're quite right in the fact that this this is often the number one area that that pushes people away because they're suffering, you know, either and and often not not necessarily themselves, but you know, oh my little sister, you know, my baby sister is in the hospital with leukemia. How can God allow? my little five-year-old sister to be suffering or my best friend, you know, got in a car accident and died. And there's so much pain in the world and pe people themselves suffering. And I think we really have to slow down in our, our, our approach when someone is suffering in that way, because one of the worst things that we can do is to just try out an intellectual answer. And now 
I want to be really clear. I think that there are very good intellectual responses to the problem of pain and suffering. Um, the fact, I think fundamentally the most powerful response is the fact that God gave us free will. He allows us to choose things so that we can choose to love him. Because if he forces us to choose things, we're not freely loving him. We're not freely loving other people. We're just little robots or puppets. And and he, he created us to be freely choosing and loving and being in relationship with him. And because of the fall, we use our freedom to do really stupid, terrible things to each other, to ourselves. And that's something that's part of the experience of, of freedom that will ultimately be redeemed, but causes a lot of havoc in the time being. Now, that I think is a very good thing for us to be able to explain, but it's not the right response to bring out right away when someone says, I'm so angry with God because my mother, you know, has is, is dying. Yeah, that's not the time to bring in the intellectual arguments. So this is where we need to have that theory of mind. We need to imagine, we need to put ourselves imaginatively in that person's place and say, what does that person need to hear from me? And fundamentally what they need to hear is, I love you, I support you, I'm grieving with you. I mean, we have it right there in scripture. St. Paul says, grieve with those who grieve, weep with those who weep, and rejoice with those who rejoice. But he doesn't say, tell the people who are weeping that they really shouldn't be worrying too much. Now he does say that we shouldn't grieve as the people grieve who don't have any hope, because he's, but that's reminding us as Christians that we, have, we do have a hope. But again, notice that he doesn't say, don't grieve because we have hope. He says, don't grieve as the pagans do who have no hope. Don't grieve in a despairing way. But he fully endorses grieving and sorrowing. I mean, so much of scripture is full of lament. You know, the Psalms, Lamentations, Job, everywhere you turn, there's there's Holy Scripture giving us a voice of expressing, I hurt, I'm wounded, I don't see how this is all working out. So I think our first response in, in those situations needs to be, I'm with you, I'm with you in this in this sorrow, I'm with you in this darkness, um, I'm going to walk beside you, I'm going to be your support. And I think ultimately, one of the best responses that we can do in that moment, in terms of answering the question of why is to point to Christ on the cross and say, we don't, we don't believe in a God who holds himself apart from our pain. Our God suffered with us. He suffered the depths of it. He even felt abandoned. He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So even God allowed himself to experience the feeling of separation from God. There is nothing that we can suffer that he on the cross can't share in because he has already shared in it. And I, I think that pointing to the crucifixion is a really powerful imaginative response to people who are grappling with the problem of suffering. So I think we want too quickly to point to the resurrection and say, it's going to get better, it's going to get better. Well, it will. But our Lord didn't just go instantly from, you know, 
the events of the Passion to the Resurrection, he hung on the cross. There's that moment of, of actual suffering. He lay in the tomb while his friends were grieving. And I think we need to enter into that and be able to say, our God is a God who suffers, who suffered, who lay in the tomb, who was helpless himself, and then rose. And that imaginative entering into it is a profound comfort, I think, for people who are suffering, if we're willing to be patient and, and go with them through it. Right. Um, I remember just talking with a skeptic recently about um, just someone close to me that I know about the incarnation and kind of how that relates to the problem of suffering. It's such a profound thing that we Christians have that we can point to to kind of talk about the problem of evil. Uh, one thing that I'm curious about is, I believe it was Josh Rasmussen who uh, was working on a theodicy where he talks about like why would God allow evil? Why would we have to go through like turmoil and suffering um, in this life? And one of the things he talks about is the idea of just like a story. Um, you know, the books we read, they, there's no book where it starts happily ever and after and ends happily and ever and after with no adversity to be a pretty boring book. Um, and you know, like our lives have adversity and you know, we love a story that has adversity. Um, so do you think that would relate to this kind of imaginative approach to apologetics with the problem of like pain and suffering? I think so. Um, now, I wouldn't necessarily recommend using this as a way to help someone who's actively suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, when they're actually in the moan of suffering, it, it doesn't really help to be told that it will make a good story. You'd be like, yeah, I'd prefer, <laughs> I'd prefer to have my story not have this bit in it. Thank mm -hmm. you. Very yeah. <laughs> but I think as apologists, it can help us um, very, very profoundly when we're reading these different narratives. And again, this is a great reason to read fiction um, because it helps us enter into just all different kinds of stories. And we can see the way that things like suffering and adversity shape people in different ways, depending on the circumstances, depending on their personalities and, and what, what help they're given or, or what they believe. And I think that understanding the way that we're all part of our own stories, we're all part of the story that God is telling. And I think that engagement imaginatively with lots of different stories can help us maybe sometimes choose our approaches more wisely to be able to say, well, how can I help people get through this stretch of their story? And it might not be the same as my story and how I dealt with this, the problem in my story. And especially because, again, stories can allow us to enter into experiences that that we never that we never had. And I recently read um, a book about um, an accident on, on Mount Everest of mountain climbers. Uh, trust me, I am never going to climb a mountain. Not did <laughs> no thank you. Um, but the story was very well told, and it allowed me to kind of enter into what is it like to be trying to make decisions um, about, say, rescues in very extreme conditions and and the strain and, and, and stress that people are under. Um, and it allowed me to, to gain a little bit of an understanding of what that is like, even though I am never going to go mountain climbing. So we can do that in all sorts of different contexts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, reading fiction, uh, definitely something I recommend. I've been doing it more recently, so I'm glad you brought that up. We've talked a lot about like, apologetics and the Christian imagination and how it can just help as apologists. But like, what are the, some of the limits to like this method that you, you bring forth? Well, I think, I mean, that's an important thing to keep in mind because I, you know, very keen on using the imagination, but there is 
no silver bullet. There's no one size fits all for any apologetics approach. And that goes, that holds true for philosophical arguments, for also for witness. There's nothing that is going to be the full convincing argument just by itself. So when it comes to imaginative approaches, they help us to have more meaning for things. They help us to understand people's perspectives. They help us find ways to talk about things in ways that are interesting and compelling. But those meaningful, compelling stories by themselves are still just stories. We need to help people take the next step and say, well, is it true? And that's where we need to bring in the intellect to say, yes, this is true, or this is true in this way, and this is how we know it. So I think it's really important to keep in mind that imaginative approaches and intellectual arguments, they're like two sides of the same coin. We, we need them both because we need to be telling these great stories and engaging in these great stories and also saying, and it's true because we can look at history, we can look at philosophy, we can look at our reasoned arguments. And at the same time, as we're making these reasoned arguments, we need to be also saying, is this meaningful to the person I'm talking to? Do they actually get the picture or is it just dry abstract words? So I think we've, we've got to recognize that both the intellect and the imagination have limitations and we need to be able to have both of them kind of mutually supporting each other. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one kind of thing I want to leave you with here as we start to wrap this interview up is just talking about like, why does this all matter? Like I, I could see an apologist thinking, well, all I care about is like the logic or the evidence or the facts or the skeptic, like well, all I care about is like proof or evidences, like things like that. Like, so why just in general, why does this idea of using our imagination matter? Well, I think it comes back to this idea of integration that however much we may want to emphasize a certain thing, like, you know, just the logic or just the proofs, we don't live like that. Um, mm -hmm. We are human beings and we have family, we have friends, we have relationships, we have the experience of being embodied, we eat, we drink, we sleep, we get tired, you know, we get bored, um, we, we see beauty, um, we respond to it. So we are always engaged in experiencing the world in a lot of different ways that are not just the intellect. And I think that if we really want to help people grasp the Christian claim, well, we need to engage the richness of it because fundamentally when as Christians, we're, we're not just making up intellectual claim like, you know, that you could prove with a science experiment or, or even just a single philosophical claim. We're saying something about the way that reality works, like all of reality. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no, there's no little bit that is left out of our claim. That's pretty shocking, really. So if we're going to make such a shocking claim, we kind of need to draw people in to engage with it in, in multiple ways. And I think as kind of two two things I would leave you with. One is that for the skeptic, it can be, and, and speaking as someone who was an atheist, um, it can be very easy to kind of make a little defensive, um, you know, defensive wall where you're, you kind of pick and choose like, well, these are the points that I'm going to, that I'm going to focus on. I'm not going to, I'm not going to engage with anything else. Um, because if you think about it, it's actually really terrifying what we Christians are suggesting. 
it's scary. It's really scary. So it's quite natural that someone who doesn't believe would would kind of kind of want to keep that wall up because we're making some pretty big claims about the way the universe works and how we should relate to it. And I think when we build up that wall and you've got maybe the focus on the intellectual arguments, it becomes easier to defend those. And so very gently, if we're using different approaches, if we can point to witness, if we can draw in, you know, let's let's think about the meaning of these ideas. It kind of helps those walls to to kind of crumble a little bit and maybe let some doorways through it in ways that are less sort of aggressive than just like, I'm going to defeat you in an argument. Mm -hmm. It's more inviting and it, it kind of allows a more gradual way for the skeptic to, to kind of come out from behind the defensive wall and say, well, I'm not, I'm not sure about this, but let's talk about this story. Let's talk about this film. Um, and again, we want to remember that the point is not to destroy their arguments. It's to win them to Christ. And so that the imagination can help us to be a little kind of gentler in, you know, inviting that skeptic to come in and consider our claim. And then the last thing I would say has to do with our own Christian formation, which is we need to remember that we also have to be integrated. And it's very easy for any of us to just focus on the one part of apologetics that's like super interesting to us and kind of let the other things fall away. But the imagination, if we cultivate it, it helps us to make those those meaningful connections so that we're not just becoming, you know, floating brains or or whatnot, that we're going to be more connected and more whole as people, which means that we'll be more effective as witnesses to to Christ. Yeah, there's so much great stuff that you talked about here, Holly, and I'm sure for a lot of people listening, like if they're curious on how to like follow you and your work, um, how can they do that? Well, the easiest way would be to go to my website, which is hollyordway.com. And uh, of course, the the ideas that we've been talking about tonight, uh, today, um, what time it is? <laughs> I don't know, whatever time it is. Whatever time you're watching this, dear viewer, um, are coming from primarily from my book, Apologetics and the Christian Imagination. Um, but as I said, you can you can find links to all of my work um, on my website, hollyordway.com. Thank you for that, Holly. And just thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a great conversation. I love the approach you've brought to apologetics. It's really, um, it's just so helpful to think about it in a different way than our traditional like logic and evidence is. Not saying you're being illogical, of course, um, but I know we've talked about that. So it's awesome. Exactly. Um, I'd encourage everyone, if you're listening to this, go follow Holly and her work. And after you're done with that, you can follow us at Adhering Apologetics. I'd encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, a review, however you're listening to us. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, we're brought to you by you with your support. So if you enjoy us, you can support us on patreon.com slash Adhering Apologetics. Holly, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for everyone who's tuned in. God bless. <laughs>